Thank you for downloading our podcast or watching our sermon series. Reformed churches are sometimes accused of being rather stoic in their worship. Some might accuse a Reformed church as a church that quenches the Holy Spirit. Is this claim really fair? Do Reformed people really desire to quench the Holy Spirit? Why do Reformed people have such a high view of the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments? Does the Lord really work through such means? Please join us and be edified as we consider the Lord building His church through His means of grace in our series titled, Why Such Means. Well, I mentioned we finished our study in the Heidelberg Catechism, and I didn't want to just go through another confession as we did with the Catechism, just taking it Lord's Day by Lord's Day. I'm not complaining, that's appropriate, but it can get redundant. And so I wanted to just sort of go through the different confessions and again just highlight the different confessions that we have so we remain familiar with what our church teaches, what we believe, and just see what these confessions are teaching us regarding the means of grace. And so I wanted to consider, first of all, as, as we look at this series and we consider what our confessions are teaching us, what does it mean truly to be a disciple of Christ? And, and why is it important that he has implemented means to conform us, empower us uh, to live out this discipleship. Uh, because as we hear of this, we might think that maybe self-help isn't so bad. After all, this is trying to improve oneself, uh, trying to make oneself better tomorrow than what we are today. And I guess we can say in terms of looking at that, that may appear to be something beneficial and good. And so what, what do we believe as Christians regarding discipleship and how this discipleship is not really self-help, but it's something bigger. It's a bigger call. It's, it's not really just trying to find some deity or please a deity, but it's truly desiring to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. What, what is distinctive about this? What, what makes us different um, from, say, other religions and other beliefs? And so as I look at this, or as we look at this, I want to go through uh, what Christ is laying out and sort of wrestle with what, what does he mean by bearing a cross? What is the plan that, that Christ intends for us, secondly? And lastly, as we wrap this up, what, what is discipleship? What does this fundamentally look like? And so let's begin with, with what is cross-bearing? When we ask this question, is this isn't a question... That in our day and age or our society, I guess maybe in America, maybe in other countries where we can see uh, the gospel really seeming to go out without much restraint, uh, maybe this cross-bearing concept isn't something that, that's so controversial. But in America, this isn't something where we always start in terms of the gospel, right? When, when we talk about Christ, we talk about the gospel, a lot of times gospel preaching becomes sort of this self-help message. Now keep in mind, if we want to talk about improvement or, or living in a moral society, I would rather live in a moral society than an absolute immoral society as it's conforming to common grace. But the issue is, what, what is self-help? I mean, really, this is trying to find better habits, trying to find a better exercise of one's will. Uh, it's trying to find better time management whatever it may be. And so what happens is it really becomes these techniques that we can hone within 
ourselves. So notice the, the fundamental assumption there, that everything that we need is within us. So we're not fundamentally broken. We're not fallen in sin. We're not people who need a radical renovation. Everything that we need is found within ourselves. If we truly believe in a self-help uh, philosophy or belief. Notice how the Belgic Confession summarizes the human condition. And this is one of the reasons I wanted to look at Article 24. I also really appreciate how the Belgic Confession lays out and goes through sanctification. I think it's very helpful uh, just tucking this away and remembering this if you want to you know, ask yourself, what does sanctification mean? Belgic Confession, Article 24, is a great uh, confessional article to always keep in mind. Very helpful. Not to say the other ones are not. But in terms of sanctification, I think it's a very uh, concise answer, but it's also very precise at the same time. But getting back to the point, what does the Belgic Confession say about the human condition? Article 24 says, apart from it, meaning regeneration, they will never, they will never do a thing out of love for God, but only out of love for themselves and fear of being condemned. I mean, if, if you think about that statement, that is a rather pessimistic view of humanity. Now, obviously, I I, I abide by this. I believe it. I sign on to the form of subscription. I'm not qualifying the form of subscription or teaching against the confession in any way. But I want us to understand what the confession is telling us. It's telling us that apart from the act of God's gracious regeneration, we will never even begin to desire to want to live unto God. This is telling us of a radical depravity, a radical brokenness within ourselves, that, that we don't need to just sort of tweak and, and polish the edges, that there's a few rough edges. This means to the very core of who we are, we are sinful. Our motivation is only going to be for self-promotion on the one hand, so it means that trying to better oneself, if, if we can do this in our own strength, I mean, I guess formerly, we can do it outwardly when we talk about common grace, but, but we can't truly do it from the heart. That even if we do this formally, we're still not truly doing this out of love for God. Not by the power of faith, not as we walk in the Spirit, and so it's not truly a good work. So that's, on the one hand, that's the best way. So notice that's the best way, that, that we're just doing it out of self-motivation or selfish intentions. The worst way is that one is being restrained because they're scared of being condemned. So again, this is that consciousness of uh, knowing that if we do something wrong, that we might get in trouble. And we don't want to be in trouble. And so the Belgic Confession is hitting on something important about the human condition. That yeah, there's formal things that man can do outwardly that appear morally good. But it's not truly done to please God. And the reality is it's, it's someone just trying to, to do good and better themselves because they don't see there is a fundamental problem within self. And you see, this is really the struggle and the controversy of the gospel, isn't it? That, that we have to come to grips 
with that it's not that there's just a bigger being outside of ourselves. I mean, you can go to other world religions and they can be conscious that there's a deity, there's a being. I mean, God left his signature. We know there's a God and, and we know that we have to please him. But the thing that's distinctive about Christianity and what I love about the Belgic is it drives home the reality, the reality that we are those who have to please the true God. And it's only done in the power of faith as the Spirit works that faith within us by regeneration, by God's mercy, and that we're resting in the merits of Christ. When you look at other religions, they're not resting in the merit of a Redeemer. They're resting in the goodness of their actions. You know, we hear in Hosea the the absurdity of what Israel does in, in Baal worship and how they actually harm themselves, harm their flesh to try and prove their worthiness of Baal's affection and getting Baal's attention. Well, we can say, well, that's the Old Testament. But you start looking at different religions and, and what different people do, and it's works-based. I need to do these works to have a deity please with me. Self-help, I need to do these things to make myself a better person because everything I need is truly deep within me. What Christianity is saying, the reality is, we can't improve ourselves. And that's a pretty dreary message to hear. And so when, when Christ lays this out and we can say, well, what, what, what's going on in, in terms of this? And when Christ is talking about discipleship. And I think it's very important in terms of the Christian life when, when we hear the means of grace, we come to worship, that we understand what discipleship means. There, there's, there's not a graduation in this life. I mean, when we graduate, we, we go and take a step uh, to be with the bosom of Christ, like we hear with the parable of uh, Lazarus and the rich man. But in terms of this life, our discipleship is a continual process. So to be a disciple, when we put this in the context of what Scripture means, it means we're coming under a rabbi, under a teacher. And so when, when we're wanting to be a disciple, it means we have to continually learn from our Savior. And so we, we have to understand this is an ongoing process. There's never a time when we stop being a disciple of Christ. There's never a time when, when we uh, stop in our Christian life and in our growth. There's setbacks. Uh, there's times when we advance. But it's understanding we're all doing this for the glory of our teacher, for our redeemer, for our savior, for our God who has looked upon us for whatever reason and has given us new life. And so in, in general, this is what we want to see as distinctive in terms of Christianity versus self-help. Self-help, everything within me is complete uh, and, and I can do this in Christ. We're doing whatever we do because we want to glorify our savior not living for a deity, not trying to discover some being, not trying to be united to the one, whoever that mysterious one may be. We know who our Lord is. He's given clear revelation. He has revealed to us that as we take hold of Christ by faith, we have Christ. And that's what we need to take from this. Now, does this mean that we can't glean anything from worldly wisdom or some worldly advice. I mean, certainly we, we can glean things from it, but we need to be discerning. And that's what I, I hope we take from this as we hear this. 
And so as, as we know the, the Belgic Confession, on the one hand being pessimistic about the human condition, we need to also understand the Belgic Confession doesn't just leave us in a place of hopelessness, does it? It doesn't just say, well, you're never going to arrive. Uh, there's never any hope. You're just broken, miserable, sinful. Have a good day. That's not what the Belgic tells us. But it assures us that by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we do begin to conform to Christ. We do begin to bring glory to his name. And we do begin to look on to him to find life and, and want to be instructed by him and conform to him, hopefully, as we sojourn under the sun. But the reason I, I wanted to look at Luke 14 as we start this is because Christ gives this gospel presentation that would basically fly in the face of any contemporary advisor. You know, if you think of some consultant coming into a church saying, this is how you preach a good gospel message to bring in the masses and to grow your church, uh, Christ basically here does everything in this chapter uh, to not bring people in. And, and I think this is something as, as a church we don't always take seriously. I'm not saying we have to go out and try and purposely offend people, and that's the call of, of, of the Christian. But there's something here that, that we really learn from Christ in terms of how he presents the truthfulness of the kingdom uh, without any compromise. So we find the context here. It's in the house of a Pharisee. So where this begins, in chapter 14, you think, oh, he's, he's at the banquet table of a Pharisee. They've invited him in. There's a great opportunity for Christ uh, to persuade these individuals and to get the leadership of Israel on his side. But Luke tells us what, what happens, that there's a man there with dropsy, so basically there's some sort of swelling that's going on in the skin. We, we don't know exactly what, what's going on, but obviously there, there's something that, that's weighing this person down. And Christ asks this, this question, is it okay that I heal on the Sabbath? It's important to understand that, that, that the Sabbath, the true intention is, is restoration. It's finding fulfillment. It's finding joy in God. It's, it's being refreshed in that reality. And so healing on the Sabbath makes perfect sense because this is where one truly enjoys having the blessings of redemption and contemplating this. Well, there's no answer. Christ heals the individual. And we have the Pharisees remaining silent. Christ then says, well, if you have a son or you have an ox. In other words, well, maybe if you value a son, but maybe you don't value a son. How about an animal? Would you care about an animal? I care about my people. What, what's your priority? And that's sort of how Christ is prodding the Pharisees. So you hear this and go, ooh, I don't know. This is not going to get you invited back to this meal. But he goes on. And then he notices the priority of how the Pharisees are seated. And he notices that they want to sit in a high place. You know, we, we do this in our society. We think of a wedding. I mean, if you go to a wedding, you have the head table where you have the bride, the groom, and you have uh, all the people in the wedding party that are, are usually assembled at that table, right? They're, they're the guests of honor, if you will, that those are the ones that the bride and groom say, these are the significant people in our lives. These are the people we keep close to us. And generally, you have the parents sitting close in the grandparents, and, and you can see the seating arrangement accordingly. And so we, we can understand this priority. 
Well, Christ is pointing out the fundamental problem with the Pharisees. They're, they're propping themselves up and saying, oh, well, I'm important, so I'm going to sit at this place by, by the host. And, and again, you, you wonder what it must be like to be a disciple. I, I just wonder what this must be like if you're a disciple and Christ opens his mouth and you go, oh my goodness, what's he going to say now? And all of a sudden, Christ then calls attention and says, well, I notice you guys like to set yourselves in priority positions. You want to know a better way to do this? Why don't you sit at the foot at the table? And then when, when the master comes and says, oh, you can elevate yourself, you can pick yourself up. In other words, Christ is saying, part of what we learn in discipleship is humbling ourselves before our Savior. Instead of thinking that we're entitled to the blessings of the kingdom or the blessing of heaven, again, Belgic confession, God's not obligated to reward our works. I mean, after all, these are crowning his good things he's doing for us. And, and praise be to God that we conform. I'm not complaining. But praise be to him. And that's what the Belgic wants to drive home. And what Christ is saying here, don't, don't think you come to this banquet table or in this kingdom because you're worthy. You come here because it is Christ who has made you worthy and has given you new life. He goes on then and talks about this parable, the great banquet, which is something also that becomes a little controversial. Because the Pharisees would see themselves as elite, put together. They got it figured out. But who are the members of the kingdom? Those who understand they're crippled. Those who are understand that they're blind and they need to see. Those who understand that they're broken and, and need the grace of God. Those who understand they are incomplete in and of themselves are those who find joy in being part of this kingdom. That's the point of that parable. And so Christ is saying, understand that the point of this banquet is not for the worthy, it's for the unworthy. This is, these are the people who receive the blessings of the kingdom. So now we move to the verses of our concern. So verse 25, the implication is Christ is now out of the house. We, we don't know if it's the next day. It's probably the next day. He's probably uh, slept there for the night. And now he goes on to travel to Jerusalem. This is a journey in which he's undergoing. And we have great crowds that are following him. So this is where I, I imagine the church consultant you know, talking to Christ, like, okay, you can do the miracle. So why don't you perform a miracle, woo the crowd so they see this, this great act, and then tell them a story, tell them about Satan falling from heaven. That, that will bring them in, and, and that will get their attention, and they'll be captivated, and then do a bit of a gospel presentation, but minimize that crosstalk uh, because that doesn't always go over so well when, when we do our surveys, and so minimize that. How does Christ start? I mean, this is something that, again, I, I wonder, what, what do the disciples think when, when they're still trying to process this and figure out who Christ is? Great crowds come out to listen to him. How does he start? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own family, say, what? Hate his mother, hate his father, hate his wife, hate himself. You, you wonder, what, what is this? We're coming out to hear a rabbi. We're, we're taking our time to listen to you. And all Christ is doing is saying to them, listen, if you don't hate everyone around you, then you're not worthy to be my disciple. And so you, you wonder, what, what is Christ doing here? 
He's not doing anything to woo the crowds. He's not doing anything to, to persuade them to follow him. In fact, he's doing the opposite. He's telling them basically, if, if, you, don't, if you don't hate your family, then you don't love me. And then he goes right into the bearing one's cross. And when we hear of this, this cross-bearing, we, we wonder, what, what does Christ mean by this? Because bearing one's cross in the Roman world is one of the most controversial things you could say. I mean, this is not something that Rome was even proud of in, in terms of crucifying people. And maybe people aren't fully making the connection yet at this point in Christ's ministry. But his point is, if you're not willing to die and be crucified on the cross for the sake of the kingdom... You're not my disciple. I mean, that's pretty radical. It sounds as if he's demanding and commanding absolute martyrdom. And if you're not going to be martyred, you're not a disciple of Christ. And so we, we hear this and we wonder, well, we understand this force of the cross and, and death, but, but what is Christ saying is fundamentally the plan? Well, Christ goes on and he wants those who come out to really understand the cost of following him. And so he gives two parables in the context here. The first parable is a, a parable of one who's setting out to build a tower, uh, as we find in, in verse 28. So this is, could be a farmer, this might be a king, uh, whatever the case, it's some sort of a structure, some sort of a building. And if you're going to build the building, you want to make sure the funding's secured, right? That's what Christ is saying. So whether you build or not build, you want to make sure that, that this funding is secured so you don't just set a foundation and then you go, oh, oh my goodness, I didn't think about the full cost of this and other materials. And so here you have a foundation after telling everyone in, in your neighborhood or your village that here you are building this tower and, and you can't finish. He says, well, people are going to start mocking you and saying, well, you're kind of a foolish businessman that here you are trying to build something. You haven't fully counted the cost. And so what are you doing? And so Christ is saying that's, that's the first uh, parable that's going on here. Then there's another parable where Christ lays out this scenario of, of a king. Now with this king, there's uh, 10,000 that he has in his army. Another king has 20,000. And so Christ says that if you're the king with, with 10,000, you understand you're going to be clobbered when that other king comes against you. So you're going to start thinking, how do I survive and not face a miserable death and get out of this? So what, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to try and send a delegation because if you go to war, you're not going to win. So you're best off figuring out some sort of terms of peace some sort of agreement, some sort of way to formulate some sort of a covenant so that you're not going to face death. And that's the second scenario. And so when, when we hear this, we might say, well, what, what is Christ's point? Well, on the one hand, we might say Christ is teaching us to be better businessmen. Well, I, I don't know if that's entirely the point of the parable in, in terms of the context, of telling us to hate our family. It doesn't seem that that would follow. Hate your family, but be a better businessman. That, that doesn't seem to fit. But when we look at these parables, we, we can find that there are two different ways in which individuals are counting the cost. 
So when we think about the first man, there's nothing compelling him to build. We, we don't have anything in terms of the parable where he needs to build a new structure that is pressing upon him. He's free to build or not to build. Whatever he wants to do. But he's decided to build. And so if one decides to build, then one better be able to follow through. So, so one is, is able to do what they want by their own volition. There's nothing constraining them uh, to truly uh, build or, or not build. He, he can do what he wants. The second one, there's really two options that are laid out for the king. Uh, the first option as he looks at it, is face a grueling, miserable death, which is probably what the king would face if he's likely captured and his army's defeated. Uh, it's not going to be a good death, and it's not going to be a good life if his, if his life is spared. Uh, he will be mocked, and he will be most likely paraded around. So there, there's a constraint. He really needs to act and figure out how to survive. So it's not build or not build. Now it's I need to act and figure out how do I get out of this scenario that, that I see playing out in my mind. This army comes against me. I'm either dead, captured, and facing a miserable existence. So we look at this say, okay. So, so we can understand there's something going on here at the parables helping us understand this hate that's more than just a lesson of being a better politician or a better businessman. We find something else where Christ says that we also have to be willing to renounce everything, all of our possessions, which is helping us understand what Christ intends here. Now, when we hear this, if, if we want to take all this literally, on the one hand, we can say, well, then we must die on a cross. We, we must literally be martyred that way to be a true disciple of Christ. Uh, we must be better business people. We must be great politicians and we must not have any possessions. So if we're going to take this literally, that's what we could take from this. And there are people in history that have lived in communes appealing to passages like this, where they did renounce themselves of all possessions. The problem with that is we do have testimony in the New Testament with greetings that are given to individuals and churches. And we say that some of these individuals were most likely homeowners who had houses that they use for the church to meet in, which tells us that they actually had possessions. It wasn't sinful for them to have a house. We think of Philemon and Onesimus, and we can think of that letter, uh, where Philemon is a friend of Paul and most likely one who owns a house, and you have Onesimus, a slave, who's run off, and, and Paul doesn't tell him to get rid of literally all his possessions. And, and so it's not necessarily sinful for him to have possessions. We think of the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthian church about the offering to the Jerusalem churches. Again, this presupposes that they have an abundance and they're giving from this as we read immediately in the context. And so when we look at that, we say, well then, is it a situation where Christ says one thing and the apostles say something else and there's a, a tension here? Or is this like what we've learned in Matthew's gospel, where Matthew, being the rabbi, says strong statements with the intention that we, as disciples, start asking ourselves, what does the teacher, our Lord, expect of us? Well, what does this mean? So let's 
consider then what is this discipleship? Well, what's the strong language? You know, hating your family. This is why I wanted to spend a little bit of time to talk about the parables of the banquet. What is the immediate struggle in the context? Well, the immediate struggle in the context is individuals wanting to be significant and using the kingdom for their own significance. In other words, it's a disciple trying to put themselves over the teacher. This is not going to work. God is God. We are the creatures. God is a redeemer. We are those who need redemption. That's what the Belgic Confession is driving home. Apart from the redeeming work of Christ, we have nothing, and we are nothing, truly. That's the reality of this. So when Christ says one must hate their own family, what he has is he has people who are coming out most likely waiting to see that performance, that miracle, that action that Christ is going to do. And Christ is saying, listen, you can't follow me and follow the Pharisees. You can't follow what they're doing. What I'm bringing is a call to truly follow me and to be willing to be put out of the synagogue, as we can find, tragically, son healed. They asked if you did it, Lord. We didn't want to tell them because they were going to put us out of the synagogue, right? Christ is saying you need to be willing to be put out of the synagogue. You need to be willing to let go of all the significant family connections if that's what comes of it. You need to be willing to let go of anything that you think gives you significance in this age. So Christ is speaking in hyperbole. Because we can find there's many Christians who have lived their lives and have not been sacrificed upon the cross to show their true commitment. So the cross becomes a metaphor of self-sacrifice. This is our desire to live in light of the kingdom, denying ourselves, dying to self, and living unto Christ. Right? The great prayer of John the Baptist. He must be greater, I must be lesser. That's the force and that's the reality of what John's saying and what Christ is saying to us. We need to know our place in the kingdom. We are those who need redemption. And so we need to be willing to let go of all the things that give us significance in this age. Now, when we look at the context of these parables, the commentator has summarized it very well in talking about the counting of the cost of these two parables. The first parable is really that invitation. As Christ is laying this out, saying you must be willing to let go of all significance in terms of a general call of the gospel, in terms of our perseverance as we persevere by the preserving power of the Holy Spirit and what that means, what Christ is saying then is can we really afford to turn against Christ? In other words, Christ is saying, is it really worth having all the luxuries, all the family connections and clinging to that as your identity or clinging to Christ? And so it's, it's a clear-headed exhortation, if you will, like we heard from Peter last time, having that clear-headedness of, of this age, not in the drunken stupor is sort of the contrast of how Peter presents it. That's what Christ is getting at, the clear-headedness of what does this kingdom mean? And, you know, as, as one person that I visit puts it so well, are you a fan or a follower? I, I think that's a funny way of putting it. But that's really what Christ is saying. 
do you understand the cost of following Christ? He's saying to the crowds, if you're coming out here to be entertained, to watch a magic show, to see miracles, that's not the kingdom. That's testifying to who Christ is. That's testifying to his power, being the incarnate word of God, being the true word from heaven. But he's saying that's not the kingdom. The kingdom is truly that long haul of understanding the cost of following Christ. So that's put out there. Have that clear-headed understanding. What does it mean to follow Christ? Secondly, the next parable is can one really afford to fall into the hands of such a God if they do not want to bow the knee to Christ? And that's the reality of what this king is facing. He doesn't want to come against the army of 20,000. This is a call of Christ where he's saying, listen, now that you've considered the first parable, let's consider the implications of the second parable. Say, I, I don't want this kingdom. Christ's saying, okay. Do you really want to stand before the living God in your own merits, knowing who you are as a broken individual? Or do you want to stand before the living God in Christ Jesus and follow after him? And understand the greater reality, which I think the Belgic Confession drives home well also, of understanding we live our lives in light of that future goal, the future orientation of believing that at the end of the day, as we're grounded, rooted in Christ, as we walk in the power of the Spirit by faith, we will be vindicated with him, raised to life, enjoying the glory and beauty of heaven itself, where whatever little suffering we endure in this age, as Paul says it, pales in comparison to the glory of the age to come. So Christ is saying to the crowd, do, do you understand the significance of who I am as a redeemer? I, I'm not just a teacher. Christ isn't just an option. He's not just a guru. He, he doesn't just have some wise sayings. It's a call for us to truly bow our knee before our Savior, knowing that life is only found in Him, which the Belgic Confession does a great job of laying out the realized blessings. As we walk in the Spirit, we're walking in Christ, we're walking in that resurrection power. And so as we sojourn under the sun, we're walking in that power. It's consciously understanding who we are. And secondly, understanding that as we are joined to Him, we ultimately have nothing to fear. And so when we ask this question then, why do we, or, or do we really want to have just some sort of self-help or, or sanctification or discipleship? Well, what does this really mean? Well, I think hopefully when we listen to Christ and as the Belgic Confession summarizes the scriptures, that when we really listen, we understand we are broken, fallen people. We are sinful. We have missed the mark. We're not complete. And in and of ourselves, we, we are not going to become more complete. We need a Redeemer. And it's only by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. You see, this is a beauty. Christ doesn't just chip away the edges. He doesn't just polish us. But he regenerates us, gives us new birth, renews us conforms us, secures us to be a glorified people who are made worthy to dwell 
in his presence. As we sojourn under the sun, the other theme we pick up in Luke 14 is that beauty of the great banquet. When we see ourselves as a broken, the crippled, the blind, the deaf, those who need healing, where do they find themselves? In the presence of the great king, in the great banquet, sitting and dining at the feast of the Lamb. So when Christ is turning to the crowd, he's not just trying to be offensive. He's not just trying to be antithetical, if you will. He's calling the crowds to understand that this isn't just an option. It's not a magic show. It's a call to truly understand what it means to follow Christ. It's an exclusive, continual relationship to our Lord and Savior. Let us then continue to cling to our Redeemer by faith. Let us continue to walk in the power of that faith. And let us truly desire to be living sacrifices, living and conforming unto him out of gratitude, believing that in the final day of glory, we will be truly restored as a whole glorified people, that the blessings we taste today in the Spirit, conforming us to the will of God, we will taste in the fullness as a glorified people. Let us long for that day and live our lives in light of it, realizing the blessings today. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com, that is urcbelgrade.com, to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshipping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.